Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. This is Tactical Tuesday, conversations with subject matter experts designed to give you the practical tools, tips, and advice to lead in your career and grow your solar business. That's what we do here on Suncast. Today, I've invited my friend Del Jones, the key account manager over at Trina Pro, to tag team a conversation with me on how to maximize profits when you're installing or specifying a tracker system for your utility scale or large distributed generation solar projects. Dell's got more than 40 years of experience in this industry, and he knows a thing or three about trackers, having been a product manager at TerraSmart and even having installed trackers way back in the 90s with FPL. The guy has seen a lot of approaches and solutions to the tracker sector as we've scaled to dominate the utility scale market as a segment. More than 80% of utility scale projects are tracker based. So today, Dell and I are going to go through a checklist of five ways you can maximize your profits as you integrate trackers into your large scale project development process. I'm so glad that you've decided to join us again and level up your game, Solar Warrior. We've got conversations with subject matter experts, industry founders, and leaders in the solar revolution to help you find the resources you need. One such resource that I don't want you to miss out on and Dale mentions in the conversation today, you'll find at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina, T-R-I-N-A, is this white paper that helped me get informed a bit more about some of the ways that you can help reduce O&M costs and mitigate risks. But we talked some about that and a lot about the tracker industry at large in today's episode. So let's get down to business and tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, with another practical, tactical conversation here on Suncast. For the better part of four decades, today's guest, Del Jones, has been a true solar warrior, someone who has seen the rise and fall of multiple kinds and manufacturers of technologies from concentrating solar to any type of thermal solar technology you might uh, have conceived of. Dell has seen it all and he has advised decades of businesses like yours on how to roll solar into their construction process, how to engineer better products, and he's seen the rise and domination of the solar tracker side of the business. Now more than 80% of utility scale solar projects in the world are trackers instead of fixed tilt, which is what they were by and large when I started about 20 years ago in this industry. If you've been considering how to integrate trackers and you're perhaps looking at the solar boom coming for the next five, 10 years and want to get into this industry, well, you're in the right place. And my friend Dell Jones is going to give you some guidance today with five ways to maximize profits as you integrate solar tracking into your solar project development. Dell, welcome to Suncast. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. And thanks for the time. Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of folks in the the Suncast tribe, 
are already probably in the um, the large scale C and I and utility markets, but we often do assume falsely that folks have their heads wrapped around how to use a tracker just because it's eighty percent of the market. You know, there's a whole segment of the industry doing five gigawatts a year of residential, and they're increasingly finding ways to leverage their construction crews. There are construction uh, teams and infrastructure teams in many other sectors looking at the the hot, hot market of solar. I'm sure you probably get inquiries day in and day out from companies just saying, how do I wrap my head around the core technology? You know, one of the benefits that you uh, have that you bring to the market now, especially at Trina, is that it's not just one product, a, a solar panel that Trina is well known for, but a suite of products. We'll talk about some of those today, but I want to dig in a bit to the five ways and we'll think of it as a checklist. We're going to walk down this checklist for the listeners of the ways that you can ensure that you're maximizing the solar tracker opportunity in your large scale solar plants. And for the sake of argument, I think we'll talk for the most part, like five megawatts and up, right, Dell? Yeah. And that, and that's a, an area where Again, the the cost of something less than five megawatts per unit because of the mobilization costs and a lot of the other things that go get blended into a larger project are just more costly. But you're right. I think, you know, three, four, five megawatts plus is a new ripe area. Just a lot of new new people that are wanting to install solar and the trackers seem to be very attractive to them. We're going to walk through some of the things in your four decades of experience you've seen folks do wrong and get right so that we can give everyone here listening to today's Tactical Tuesday a leg up on the competition. Dell, I mentioned I teased out here in the beginning that you've got a storied career. Imagine you've got lots of fun stories, but I remember that you told me you've been working on trackers longer than most folks uh, have been in the industry. When was the first time that you got your hands on a solar project and started thinking, well, how do we make this actually follow the sun, which is essentially what a tracker does? Yeah. The first, first project I got involved with is, uh, with FPL at the time had installed at the general office in Miami, you know, had to have been, you know, early eighties, perhaps this tracking system. It was huge. It was bulky and they moved it up to one of the, uh, generating sites on Lake Okeechobee. So just the, movement of that tracker from Miami to that location. And this was back in the day, utility scale. It was only 20 kilowatts. And uh, the inverter was huge, like eight foot tall, you know, four or five feet wide, three feet deep, somewhere around 150 decibels. You know, it was, it was just a loud, big, noisy thing. But that was utility scale in the day when modules were $60, $70 a watt. You know, Man. that's dollars per watt, not cents. Yep. But that was the first project. It was reinstalling, reconfiguring it and getting that up and running. You've spent more time than most on the actual product development, product engineering side, but also working with developers, understanding their needs. You know, a, a company that you worked with, well, well known in the industry, TerraSmart, took a very different approach, specifically focused on foundations. So I want to make sure that in the very beginning here, I, I want to kind of tease out some of the learning for listeners around what I consider to be a critical element of understanding how the solar project comes together, in particular, a tracker. You mentioned, though, the first time you met Ryan at TerraSmart. I think that's a fun story that's worth 
telling. And it goes into kind of where the industry has, how the industry has evolved thinking uh, about trackers as a key component to a utility scale project. Yeah, it was somewhere, uh, when was financial meltdown? 2008 uh, timeframe? Yep, mm-hmm. 2008 or so. I was awarded a project, uh, you know, to construct a two megawatt solar facility here in Fort Myers, Florida, at, uh, Florida Gulf Coast University. And, you know, it was substantially completed. And and I had known Ryan Reed with, with TerraSmart. He was doing fixed tilt racking and ground, ground screws. And, you know, he was out at the project and he and a couple of other folks were practically climbing the fence just to take a look at this new two megawatt system, which, you know, at the time and that that was big back in that day. And so I was like, no, you guys, I'll open the fence. You can walk around and look at it. But, you know, I was I had told him because I knew he was in the fixed tilt business, Tracker is where it's going to go. So as a percentage of total projects, Tracker was not really the vast majority back then. Yeah. And it was, you know, several years later, finally, you know, he realized he needed to get into the Tracker space. And I was hired on in the product development side for their first Tracker. For context, in the U.S., there really was kind of only one tracker company at the time, and several of them have now gone public in the, in the time since. But that is, I mean, it was very forward thinking of you at the time to say we should really consider the value of this product category to the utility scale. Now, looking back, you know, like say hindsight's twenty twenty. Looking back, anybody would say that was genius uh, at the time. It took a lot of insight on your part. You know, one of the things that is for me very interesting to understand about the tracker segment. One of the reasons that we've been able to scale the resi and the commercial sector is because even when I was back at Trina in the day, like it was all just building blocks. Commercial rooftop racking is kind of plug and play. Every system looks pretty much the same. How's that different from, or what do people most not understand about how tracker's designing process works? Well, I think what's really unique about trackers and ground mount as opposed to rooftop installations you know they have to deal with the, the building and the wind and all that but really the you know a lot of people don't really understand that every tracker project is a is a bespoke design based on a lot of conditions environmental conditions and civil conditions soil soil type rocks wind snow those are all things that govern the final design of a tracker and that's, that's, I think, fundamentally what a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the foundations are the first thing that you have to address is getting, you know, the information from geotech reports and civil and soil engineers to what it's, what is it going to take to keep this tracker on the ground from either blowing away or getting crushed by the snow. So those are the, the first things that you really have to pay attention to on a tracker project. Yeah, so checklist point number one, really got to understand the geotech. And that was a new term for me when I started looking at trackers as a category is how important the geotechnical evaluation is, the engineering required for from the ground down because of uh, something that is quite common, finding subsurface obstructions, right? That itself creates problems. Can you tell me some of the things that over the course of, of your product development you've seen people often get wrong around the foundations and the geotech, like how, even from understanding how long it takes to who to engage and whether or not at what point in the project development cycle it's done. 
Well, there's a couple of different cycles of the foundation design that you go through. Usually people do a soils test first. It's a, you know, a certain number of samples that you would pull on the site to a certain depths of soil. And you're really doing a, an in-laboratory study of that soil, uh, its corrosivity, uh, how tightly it's going to cling to the piles, and that's called the skin friction to keep the pile from coming up. So that's just the first part. But then when you get down into the further along the project development line, you start needing pull tests to get the final, final design of the foundation. So soil tests and geotechnical reports are kind of the first thing. But then when you're getting real serious about the final, final design, you're doing pull tests, trying to pull this pile out of the ground and see what its friction to coming out of the ground is. And how far in advance is of, of an actual installation is the geotech work generally being done roughly? You really almost have to have the geotech to do even a preliminary indicative design. Huh. Otherwise, if you, if you don't have a soil test, you know, you're just putting a pin on a map, it's we're guessing at what foundations would be required, what the depth of embedment are, you know, how lateral forces go. So it's really, you can't really go much further than just a guess without a geotech report. Yeah. And I think that is actually one of the things that I'm glad we keyed in on because it's something that I see uh, installers and in particular developers just making really huge errors on is they will go out and just use your run-of-the-mill plant design system. Now, maybe they'll even use one of the in, in-house or one of the easy-to-secure so sort of – it's getting easier and easier for folks to just run their own designs, right, and not rely on the manufacturers to run designs. And they'll make assumptions, ridiculous assumptions, frankly, of geotech, and then they'll call up, and the first thing they'll ask you for is a quote for a product without even having a geotech on the site. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And we just have to use a default foundation length. It's just it's just a guess, you know, and, and at that point it's it's plug number for what the pile cost is going to be. Everything that's the top of the pile we can go through because that's snow and wind load and mechanical design. But but you know, someone you know, a, a manufacturer should give some assistance and help with a pull-out tests and, and protocols for that geotech because that's going to make or break the uh, the design. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a bit, the concept of the total cost, right? The levelized cost of electricity that a plant can deliver. It incorporates both first costs and ongoing CapEx, so first, first costs and ongoing OpEx. But in that first cost, I have found, and I think that um, it has shown true across, uh, across at least the U.S. Uh, market, but the biggest assumptions and therefore the biggest mistakes are made at the foundation level. So checklist number one, get the foundation right. Understand a geotech plan is actually a core component to getting a real quote so that you know what your first costs are going to be. It's a, it's a big mistake to think that you can go make some broad assumptions about the type of pile and the pile depth embedments and the type of under uh, subsurface conditions out the gate and just sort of throw caution to the wind on, on that when you get to, because you will not be able to pull a permit on that project. You won't be able to order a tracker from a Trina or anyone else uh, until you uh, are clear on what the subsurface conditions look like. And even then, Nico, it's still uncertain. 
unless we have x-ray vision, you're always going to be at risk of, you know, you'll, you'll get a sense from the geotech report, you know, whether there's going to be possibilities of refusal, which is basically you're trying to drive a pile down and you hit a rock and it's not going to go anywhere. And then maybe a something that should have cost $20 could be $300 just for that one foundation to, to get it right. Well, let's, let's talk about that, Dale, because after checkpoint one, the foundation, you've got checkpoint two, which is the top of the pile. Presumably, if the foundation's right, top of the pile should be smooth sailing. Isn't that the part that just kind of you're clicking in and you're just laying, uh, you're just, at that point, you're just laying steel on top of, the, of these posts and, and rocking and rolling? Yeah, and that's the, that's the 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 part that should be speedy, and you should be be able to rip right through that mechanical assembly and mounting the modules. But then once in a while, you come across a foundation that just wasn't quite right. It's it's leaning over to the east, to the west. It's a little high, a little low, and those are the things that slow that velocity down because you got to deal with making the bearing housing fit into the right place because the torque tube on a tracker is straight as an arrow and you want to make sure that those bearings that that the torque tube rotates in are spot on in terms of their location so you know any adjustment capabilities that you have on that bearing housing moving it left right up down twists are definitely things that will will allow you to keep that momentum moving right yeah and when you've got hundreds of people standing around on site because one post didn't go in properly. And, and now all of a sudden you've got to re, uh, re-engineer that row. It can, it can get costly. You know, with much of the most appealing land already snatched up for installations, it seems like navigating complex terrains is going to become inherently more difficult for installing trackers. It was, uh, you know, when we were installing in the huge tracts of land out in the Nevada desert and much of uh, and much of California and even the lowland croplands they've been taking up in my native South Carolina it still is pretty relatively flat terrain are, are we going to sacrifice long-term power output or even limit our ability to continue using trackers as these sites become more complicated and and if if so uh, you know what are we how are we as an industry going to approach this I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the our ability to navigate the more complex terrain scenarios that we're in, that we are going to encounter. And in particular, like now we're assuming that the foundations are taken care of. It seems like the complication comes at the top of the pile. How do we actually mount on top of these posts? Well, if you've got, I'll call it lumpy terrain, it's undulating up and down. Uh, You know, you might be traversing an area where there were once berms. So you can set your pile height based on what the the ground level is. So just the pile height alone you can you can fix some of that lumpiness. But you know at a certain point when you get more than 10, 15 and even 20% slope variances between one end of the tracker to the other, you've really got to make sure that you've got everything working properly. And again, that adjustment at the top of the pile for the bearings and you know having something that can, you know, help you keep that velocity is going to work. But, you know, you're right, Nico, like this, this, the fact that you had distribution lines next to a great piece of property, you were able to get the land under control at the right price. You know, those are the things that we all look for. But now we're starting to look for where those distribution lines run. You can get a lease on that property. And then it, 
doesn't kill you on the cost because you've got to do a lot of civil grading. Civil, moving dirt, cutting and filling, moving dirt around can be very expensive up into the millions of dollars in some cases. So trying to optimize that balance of civil grading and adjustability of the trackers is really what makes this thing work well or in some cases doesn't work out at all. It's interesting. I think that this idea of adjustability of the trackers becoming a very common talking point. It begs the question not only about product specification, but how as a developer or EPC do I delineate between whether or not I need, whether a tracker will actually cover the terrain at all or I have to somehow switch to a fixed hill? Well, I think you really look at a grading plan and then look at what that costs. You're either going to have to do grading or you're not, and there's certain adjustability that you can do things with, but you know, you 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 really want to try to get the ground coverage ratio. You're trying to get as many modules into that site as you can to produce at the highest density of energy output for that land. And if you've got certain parts of that facility, let's say it's up in utility scale and it's vastly difference between the vast difference between, let's say, one side of the property and another side, you might even consider even a hybrid of mixing fixed tilt and trackers so that you can maximize that site. So, you know, the ability to be able to install a tracker when you've got really high slopes on the north side, north to south is probably the most difficult. The east and west you can you can deal with you know separately by a method uh, we use called backtracking so to make sure that one row of panels do not shade the right. adjacent row, which is usually controlled uh, at, at a software level. Exactly. Is there a maximum sm- slope you recommend for uh, north south? Um, when it's it's whatever the collect or, or tracker system you can get it designed to. Mm. Again. With really long tracker rows nowadays, some of these things are 100 plus meters long. Uh, the only other thing you could do is break it up into shorter pixels. Right. So, because again, you're talking about a torque tube that wants to be completely straight. The only way around that is either break up that row into smaller units, and then you're playing kind of the Tetris game to fit everything into that space as you can. Or in an ideal world, you'd have a nice steady slope from north to south at some percentage that, you know, actually enhances the tracker performance because it's tilted slightly to the south and tracking east to the west. You mentioned a term that I often try to just let's define terms as they're introduced. There's a really core one that is only ever, as far as I can tell, used in utility scale solar. It's only ever really referred to in the tracker sector, and that's GCR or ground coverage ratio. Could you help define that? And like, why does that matter? How can, how can that be optimized? It has to do with a lot of things that go into the cost of a tracker project. Because think about all these tracker rows. If you spread the tracker rows out wide, then you don't have much of an issue of backtracking because the panels tend to go like this. And then if they're spaced really close to each other, they can shade each other. So if you spread them out, that's great. But now you've also got more trenching involved for electrical wiring. You got more property you got to buy, more fencing to go around it. So there's there's this optimal design, and usually it's 0.35 to 0.4 of a ground coverage ratio of the 
actual trackers versus the area of the ground underneath them. Got it. So ground coverage ratio, like the 0.35 or 35% is the surface area covered by the tracker compared with the total surface area available in a given area? Correct. Okay. Correct. And that's usually, I know we don't need to go into the specific engineering calculations, but it's calculated based on the specific design of the tracker, whether it's a one in portrait or two in portrait or uh, kind of how the tracker's architected, as well as the distance generally measured in meters from center line of one tracker to the center line of the other tracker. What is that distance usually? Well, that that's called the pitch. It's the distance between tracker rows. And, you know, that might be, again, on a 2P tracker or two up in portrait, a lot wider than a 1P because the 1P is going to be a little lower to the ground, one in portrait. And 2P is going to be, in some cases, these trackers at full tilt are up at 14 plus feet above ground level. So, you know, these things are huge. And so the spacing or the pitch between them can change. But when you really look at like a 2P and the GCR, it's actually pretty beneficial with the 2P tracker because you also have a higher elevation of all of those bifacial modules, which mean you get more bifacial gain on the backside. And the pitch distance between the two tracker rows, it's, it's one, it's a balance of trying to optimize the energy, but then you also have to maintain these systems. So, you know, you, you really have to be able to get a vehicle between the tracker rows. You know, that might end up being module frame to module frame, eight feet or so. And then again, if you get them tighter, then the only way you're getting a vehicle through to maintain them is to put them at full tilt. But generally speaking, it's driven by being able to drive through the tracker rows and then balance that with the optimal energy production. You know, since we're talking about the pitch and ground coverage ratio, one of the things that also comes into to account here is environmental factors. You've done a lot of projects across the not only the eastern seaboard, but down into the Caribbean. You're in Florida where the standard wind design is pretty high. How do things like wind, snow, hail affect design and installation of trackers? Well, it has a huge bearing because, you know, if you're building any building, you know, if you're building in New York, you need to know the snow load for your roof design. You need to know the snow load for the tracker design as well. And the same thing with the wind. Uh, We use this tool called the ATC hazard by location all the time. It's basically you plug in either a latitude, longitude, or a specific address, and there you are. There's your wind speed category and your snow load for that particular site. There's gaps in that database, like for instance, in a lot of areas in middle of New York, it's called a uh, case study zone, where they just don't have great data to support how much snow is going to be you know, on that tracker at any particular time. But what we have to design for is the fact that we know there's going to be some snow and you can, you know, stow your tracker at a high pitch to avoid damage by hail or accumulation of snow on the tracker table. But, you know, you've only got so many times that you can dump the snow east, dump it west before now that front leading edge of the tracker is buried under snow. You know, and we have the same issue that we have to design to for wind loads. You have to have a stow position, and that's not the same for all trackers. Some stow fully tilted, some stow perfectly flat like a table, but it's all based on the aeroelastic and the wind tunnel testing that's done 
you know, in the design. So how you design your tracker and where your snow and wind stow positions are, those go into the design, the mechanical structural design of those trackers. But it's a it's a very important factor and and even below subsurface, even the corrosivity of the soil. You know, that's another environmental condition, as well as flooding. You know, some I've seen tracker projects, quote, go underwater. And as you mentioned, some of the best locations for solar sites have now been taken up. So we're kind of left with flood zones, lumpy terrain, high pitches, you know, in an area that, uh, you know, just receives a lot of snow and wind. So we have to deal with those going forward in our designs, all of us in the whole industry. Are there specific tests that I might look for to ensure that a manufacturer has done the relevant test to know, I mean, that I, I know that they're a good fit for a project where there's going to be snow or wind? Well, there's companies globally that do wind tunnel modeling and those reports and they do things like for instance a pluck test if you can imagine you know a tracker row big long tracker row you pull down one side of it and let it go and see how many times it oscillates and wind as you know is a big factor in destruction of a lot of things the classic one is engineering 101 the tacoma narrows bridge back in the early part of last century, you know, you saw this bridge that just started galloping and it just self-destructed because of the resonance, uh, the frequency of that bridge and the wind took it down. And we've seen some tracker installations now globally that have uh, suffered the same circumstances and, and fell apart. So wind tunnel modeling is something that we all pay attention to. And what we're trying to do is dampen that galloping of going back and forth. And there's several different means a lot of us in the track industry use to to mitigate that galloping effect. Makes sense. And I know that there are a lot of third-party wind tunnel tests. There's both uh, static and dynamic wind analysis. A lot of testing goes into not only identifying, but minimizing the kind of torsional galloping that the tracker industry generally has been prone to. <laughs> and uh, I think it's good for developers to really look into uh, how the how the manufacturers are handling it. You know, one thing I've seen, and this is something that obviously Trina has the ability to mitigate better than others, but a sort of finger pointing when there are failures with snow load. Was it the tracker? Was it the module? <laughs> who uh, Who is at fault? And, you know, there are different elements uh, that you got to take into consideration for each regional development that you, that you want to develop a, a a tracker project and we're seeing more and more trackers in places like Minnesota uh, where you do have to take into consideration a whole different geological and weather scenario. Yeah. And also I see Nico, I think there's a little bit of a gap and, but it's starting to close now with local jurisdictions where let's say they, they look at the wind tunnel tests and they look at the wind speeds and you make some attestation that the tracker will survive this wind for this area but what if you have a module on it that's only rated to 2,400 pascals? So the module can't survive, but perhaps, you know, the, the, the thing to take a look at is that it's a harmonized design that you are having both the tracker and the module on that tracker meet those environmental conditions. You know, speaking of environmental conditions, we talked about the post-rejection and the speed with which 
a company that is trying to put this Lego system together wants to go once they get to top of pile. We're still on um, sort of checkpoint number two, top of pile, is determined by the ability to have everything sort of straight and true and then the mechanical assembly on top of that go quickly. You mentioned a bearing system. I remember, you know, not all trackers have a bearing at the top, which is the point, the coupling point on the pile where the where the drive line essentially goes through the you know the, the the pivot point, the rotational point on which the modules are mounted. Originally, tracker bearings were cylindrical. Uh, can you talk a bit about the design considerations at, for that top of pile and how the industry's evolved there? It's really having those adjustments at the top of the pile because you got this piece of steel coming up out of the ground in H pile. So traditionally, people have I call them jelly beans. They're slots that are sort of jelly bean shaped, if you will, then it allows allows it to be moved to this position, then tightened up. So you can go beyond that even in the bearing design and the bearing design that has adjustability to it. Can you imagine that it's that the torque tube is going through this plastic bearing and it only rotates this way, but what if you know the the pile was over here? Well, if you have these bearings that are adjustable on top of the bearing housing that's adjustable, that can allow you to continue that velocity and speed and and get that torque tube through there without having to to redrive the pile. I hadn't thought about that. The fact that it might pitch to the left or to the right is actually the more damaging scenario. Not that it's higher or lower necessarily, but the ability to take the torque tube left or right. That makes sense. You know, it kind of seems like with installers installing tracking in some way, you're asking installers to learn entirely new kinds of product engineering. How difficult do you see it is to um, both, to kind of move from the traditional fixed tilt racking folks that are migrating from big CNI to sort of a medium scale distributed generation, five to 20 megawatts, uh, how difficult is a tracker compared to the traditional set system? And then some of these innovations, like you're talking about this um, spherical bearing mechanism, is it complicated or is it, is it all pretty straightforward? It's pretty straightforward. It's a lot less complicated than people think because fixed tilt, you still have to have things plumb and inline and straight and the modules fit onto the purlins where they're supposed to be. We've got all of that, but then we're also moving east to west in this rotation. So, you know, anything that encumbers that rotation because let's say a uh, a pile wasn't quite right and you're you're kind of making the torque tube try to accommodate that, that creates greater friction. That friction can cause motors to drive harder than they were what they were designed to. So again, when the the spherical bearings are just a means, another means of adjustment that can reduce that friction of the torque tube when it's rotating um, through that bearing housing. It's really a lot like fixed tilt, except that you've just got to pay attention to make sure that torque tube and that drive line is able to rotate freely without being impinged or pushed into a position where it creates more friction. You know, we talked a bit earlier and I said we'd reintroduce this topic of levelized cost of electricity. And LCOE is a terminology that's utilized in our industry to determine basically the cost effectiveness of the asset, the power plant itself. Some of the factors that go into designing towards a better LCOE, and if you're thinking through your checklist, one of those is uh, you got to reduce your first costs. A lot of folks are trying to solve for that. What's the cheapest tracker I can install, right? But 
the backside of it is the uh, the O and M. And what you've just described seems to me like it would help to reduce the O and M because if you are able to reduce the the friction and friction is kind of number one failure for mechanical systems, then it would extend the life of the asset. Can you talk a bit about the evolution of tracker designs and how that has improved LCOE for the asset owner? So as it relates to LCOE, there's a lot of different factors that come into play for LCOE. It's basically the first cost, like you said, the equipment costs, the installation, and then the operations and maintenance. So, you know, as it relates to the operations and maintenance, if you have things that are in the design that can reduce the cost of operating and maintaining or the wear of things, then that that enhances your LCOE. So again, if you've got, you know, motors that are driving harder because there's more friction, that can translate to higher costs in motors. If you, you know, have things that that impinge the the movement of the um, dampers or, you know, anything that can change what is we might call the efficient operation of the of the tracker row is going to have a bearing on LCOE. And that's, you know, a key part of it, as well as the first cost of the tracker project, which includes the CapEx costs and the installation. So anything that you can do to reduce the installation time and the efficiency of how fast that goes, that's going to have a bearing on LCOE. Maybe you budgeted for X and you ended up with Y, because, you know, you didn't really get your geotechnical right or you didn't assess what the risk was for refusal on the foundations. When anything that slows that velocity of construction, that can turn into maybe even a penny, penny and a half, and worst case, maybe even two cents a watt, because it took you a lot longer to install it and months longer in time and costs on bridge loans, construction loans, et cetera. Those all have a bearing on the LCOE. So a lot of people throw that word LCOE out, but don't really get deep into what constitutes the making of that number. It's it's a complicated cost. So in our pathway to the five ways that you can optimize the your profits on this project, the sort of third milestone here is what you've referred to as mechanical assembly. It's a common term in the industry. And it really is that middle section. And we talk about LCOE, you've got first cost, which is price to acquire, equipment, cost, installation is important. Mm-hmm. Mechanical assembly falls inside that installation segment. Where are you seeing innovations around uh, installation and time and cost savings that are driving LCOE down for trackers? Well, I am a big one on fewer parts and part types. For instance, if you had, uh, you know, uh, three bolts that would normally do it, but you could get away with two larger ones, go with the two. And also the type of bolts. If you can reduce the part count as well as the type, that also saves money. I used to joke around with uh, some of our folks on headquarters about, you know, the nuts and bolts that go into the installer's nail pouch, you know, and, and I would give them grief about, well, you've got four different bolt types just to do this particular thing. Let's, let's reduce it down to two because we only have two pouches. We can't, we don't have four pouches. And they, they thought I was serious, but I was kidding. But the point is, if you can reduce four 
bolts down to two bolts and five different sizes down to three different sizes, that matters. Because here in the U.S., we have pretty high labor costs. So anything that you can do to save time and labor costs, that is where it pays dividends on the first cost of the installation. One of the things that I always loved about working at Trina, I think if anybody didn't realize before, I've talked about it a number of times that I, uh, Trina gave me my first real introduction into how the industry really works top down. I was a, a field marketing manager and then a regional salesperson for Trina, gosh, 10 years ago now. And I just loved how Trina did a great job of like branding the integration of third-party products. I remember we did the Trina Mount, which was a Zep product, Trina Smart, which was a Tygo product, right? Like building those partnerships and bringing all these products internal to is it was part and parcel to like the Trina way. And the Tracker product has done that in a couple of different ways um, from the control systems to even the clip. Can you talk to me about like what you're seeing, like the, the complexity? This always baffled me, the complexity of, the module clamp process for a tracker, it seems unfounded, like how we could have let this get so complicated. But in the rooftop sector, clamps are clamps and they're really pretty standardized. And to your point earlier, in trackers, it feels like everybody's got, you have to like get modules custom punched for each individual tracker. How, how, how are we going to fix that? Well, and it's true. Like I said earlier, every tracker design is a bespoke design. So if you have a particular module you want to use on a tracker, the traditional way is to basically look at where those mounting holes are. And specifically, the industry has started moving to tracker holes at a set distance from the center. And that that's something that's really helped uh, speed things along. But essentially, the purlins, which the module mounts to, has to have a hole to match up with the holes on the on the module. And, you know, that basically, and it, it is much better now that we're using serrated flange nuts and bolts. You know, I can remember years ago, the, the fastener stack would be a bolt, a washer, a lock washer, another uh, lock washer, another washer, and then the, finally the nut. Or you're <laughs> required to go spend several hundred thousand dollars on huck fasteners. Yeah, and repairing those things, you know, endlessly throughout a whole project. So some of the things I, I just got this right here. This is basically just uh, showing you like some speed those, clips. For this those is not a, watching on YouTube. He's holding up a, yeah. a rail. <laughs> yeah. So basically, it's a um, a frame of a module, and then you have these clips that basically just grab and an alligator, if you will, bite between the module frame and the purlin. And the beauty of that is that, you know, you can undo it and redo it. And they, you can, in fact, you know, if two don't make the numbers work from an engineering, you can go to three or yeah, four Yeah, and you just them. knock these things on with a rubber mallet. Yeah, we had exactly. the, we had the, one of the, the companies that was innovating around that, we had his CEO on about a year ago. And I just remember seeing this thing in my hands for the first time at, at RE Plus Northeast and thinking, how did it take us 20 years to innovate this? It's well, you know, and it's funny, Nico, design. because gosh, it was back in the 80s when in the thermal days, we 
we had rails that basically were designed to fit right onto mo- solar hot water frames, slide in bolts. So we've we've we as an industry have done this. And I think we've kind of lost our way into making it just simple, reduce the part counts, the types. And I think there's another benefit is projects are getting older and ready for for repowering to be able to take off an old module and good luck trying to find a new module to match those old bolt patterns. It's just not going to happen. But with these clips, you certainly have the ability to just uh, maybe move the purlins left, right uh, along the rail and then put these clips on. But the bottom line is you want to work with a vendor that is that is themselves innovating. I mean, the there are countless ways with the, uh, the R&D budget that that you guys bring to bear that you've patented technology. I know one of the things that you guys patented on your Wumpy, which we didn't talk about, the Vanguard system is uh, this Trina clamp that reduces insulation by 50%. You know, having a partner on on your side that is going to bring to bear that kind of reduction in mechanical assembly time, it directly contributes to an LCOE improvement, right? I think that's the main takeaway here. And on mechanical assembly, the fewer parts, the more smartly engineered those parts are, the faster that section will go. So we talked about first costs, equipment costs, uh, mechanical assembly, even O&M, these all stack up to add to the LCOE. Then one thing that we didn't talk about, Dell, uh, is yield. I think the yield is probably, uh, and that's, I mean, as a Trina alum, this is one thing that we talked about a lot, right? How do you get the most power out of those solar panels? Uh, Talk to me a bit about sort of uh, checkpoint number four, the best way to get yield from a tracker apart from picking the right solar panel manufacturer, is controls. Right. And the controls, I, I, in fact, my, my daughter uh, is, works in the industry as well for a competitor. But you know, I, I always told her that to get things, she was newly coming into the industry. And I said, the tracker is not really amazing to me. It's just a dumb piece of steel. It's the controllers that move this piece of steel optimally to increase the performance, reduce risk from damage from wind and snow. That's the smarts of a tracker to me. Because, you know, you're just really, at the end of the day, you're building a mechanical design, structural design to make sure it doesn't get blown away or crushed. But then the optimization of where that tracker points is really interesting. And and the brightest spot and the most productive spot is not necessarily pointing toward where the sky, the sun is in the sky. And I'll give you a perfect example. On a hazy, diffuse radiation day where it's just cloudy, you know, we all go out and you just squint your eyes because it's just bright everywhere. And especially here where I live in Florida, there's a lot of haze and cloudy weather compared to, let's say, someplace like Arizona or New Mexico. Point the tracker to where the sun is. It's a clear line of sight. There you go. But in diffuse radiation areas where, you know, you might have a big white cumulus cloud over here to the east and the sun is over to the west, you know, you might actually get more gain from the module by pointing it toward the cloud by changing the location of it relative to the bounce of light that you get off the ground. So these advanced tracker algorithms are really where the next frontier is and toward toward optimizing the design. Most everybody has an astronomical tracker. You know, make it make it follow the sun. That's pretty simple to do. And then backtracking is well back up a little bit so 
that road adjacent that row adjacent to this row doesn't shade that row. That's backtracking. That's sort of step two. Astronomical backtracking. Now the third level is really where do you get the most gain from the bifacial side of the module and from the, the sky that's above. And that's where you can now pick up, you know, even a couple of more percent than the standard tracking algorithms that are out there. So you've got sort of one layer of, you know, you're getting X percent, the next layer is getting you a few more, and then that final layer is getting you up to 8% gains if you've got a, quote, smart tracker. Yeah, well, I mentioned earlier my appreciation for the great branding that is uh, that is Trina's marketing team. Uh, I love that the smart tracker control systems that you guys have developed are called SuperTrack. I am looking here that something caught my attention as I was just reviewing the controls because it seems on the surface, folks who perhaps uh, are just thinking, oh, it's a mechanical system, that you know, everybody's going to go with a PQ4 or whatever, right? Like there's a whole, like there's a third party, everybody's going to sort of standardize around it. But that's not necessarily true. And you say something here um, that caught my attention beyond the three to 8% energy increase that you can expect from having a smart controller is self-learning and independent decision-making. And in, a, in an era where chat GPT is on everybody's tongue, <laughs> the first thing I was wondering is, man, it seems like AI is going to completely radically change the tracker industry. Oh, I think so. Because you have sensors on the ground that are looking at the wind speed at the site. You get snow sensors that are looking at how much snow is on the ground. But we have an unbelievable amount of information that's available to, to us from the internet. There's a storm coming. There's you know different things that are coming that will feed into the controller's logic that anticipates some event that is coming and you shouldn't really wait till the sensors on site, you know, suddenly have a 60 mile an hour wind when you're in the wrong position. So, you know, moving at the right time to maintain that maximum production, not too early and certainly not too late is where I think things are going. And I think the other part of it is is additional sensors on site that, that really eliminate even more risk. Because if you've only got one anemometer on a 300 acre site, that's probably not enough. <laughs> you, you need a couple of snow s sensors, a couple of anemometers, because the most damaging potential, potential for damage of a tracker project is these exterior rows. And this is something, Nico, people don't realize, but we beef up our exterior rows. Right behind that first guard is the next level of beefy tracker rows. And even sometimes there's one behind that, and then there's everything in the middle. So if you can imagine, like, the, the, the guards on the outside of the tracker project are built much stronger than the inner rows. And that's all, again, part of this design. But, but no, every tracker row doesn't experience the same wind speed as the exterior rows. So I think another part of our industry, the next advances are going to be more sensors on site along with AI to predict weather events and things that can go wrong. Yeah. I think that a lot of folks have focused on how to increase yield in that, in the standard power curve, right? In that block mm -hmm. and try to make that block as flat as possible for a tracker in particular. But where we're going to see incre incremental improvements, especially with AI are in the shoulders, right? And exactly. um, you showed me a graph that has this 
this awesome uh, demonstration where with smart backtracking and algorithmic control mechanisms, you get increases on the shoulders early day. And the shoulders, for those who are unfamiliar, are kind of on the early day and and the afternoon where perhaps clouds or as the sun goes down, the, the power begins to wane, your ability to harvest as much solar as possible. I think that I bring this up because when we think about like ways to maximize profit, it doesn't seem obvious, but it definitely is something that a handful of the the tier one tracker manufacturers in particular really key in on is having the ability to have smart controls, have centralized cloud services, have uh, you know the ability to integrate meteorological data sharing and to protect those assets in increasingly algorithm driven, uh, well, not increasingly, entirely algorithm driven ways is important. Uh, and I just, I also love just the name super track. I think that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's somewhere again, I think, you know, the future is going to be with a lot of smart sensors, you know, whether it's even proximity sensors, just tell if somebody's even on the site. Again, these controllers that are on every tracker row, have the capability of adding on sensors for a lot of different things like back of the module temperature, uh, flood sensors. You know, you, you've created a mesh network throughout the entire solar field with all of these tracker controllers. Why not take advantage of that mesh network to get informed decisions on how to operate the system? And that's that operational costs or our operational savviness is going to have a bearing on your total production. Because you either can choose to ignore intelligence or take advantage of it. One thing we didn't talk about, and it also comes into kind of how I talked about the ability to integrate um, third-party technology into, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys specifically manufacture robots, but I know that you have integrated and thought through the process of automated cleaning with robots. How Mm -hmm. does that factor into the whole control mechanism? Well, I mean, the in certain parts of the country of like the uh, fruit basket, if you will, California, you know, there's a lot of dust that gets accumulated on a tracker. Like here in Florida, where I live, the rain does that. You know, we, we don't really need washing of modules, but having, again, intelligence at the site to know how soiled the table or the modules are are going to have a bearing on on. One, you have to roll a truck, you've got to clean this stuff, but is the juice worth the squeeze? So you've got to have an understanding of what your cost is to clean. And then when do you need to roll the truck to do that? So, you know, like you've got the ability on site to be able to take sensors that look at the soiling of the of the collectors and then immediately launch cleaning robots to go ahead and do this. And, and usually with anything like that, I think for right now, we're, we're, we definitely want human operation of those cleaners, but I could see someday, you know, stow it flat, put the Roomba equivalent on the table and let her yeah. rip. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I think that's something the cleaning and when to clean and know whether, like I said, the, the cost is worth that extra production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a whole new world in terms of uh, just squeeze, squeezing out every penny. Oh, we're we're after fractions of pennies fractions now. Of pennies. Mm. Well, and that it comes back to this idea that I have as waypoint number five on our checklist here, which is risk adjusted security of your asset. Right, the ability to know that you you have the right supplier, the right package product 
backed by uh, a strong balance sheet. Warranty, as uh, we've discussed before, is as good as the paper uh, it's written on. And if you think about the checklist, a lot of a lot of folks. I remember I was at, at Trina when Arctech entered mm-hmm. the market. Right, Arctech. Uh, for those who don't know, is a big uh, Chinese tracker, uh, very robust uh, product. Really came in at the very bottom of the market price, taking a lot of market uh, share away from folks. Talk to me about the decisions uh, that folks are making at an EPC level from a risk adjustment perspective. The the you know supply is scarce, and who you choose to partner with is important. It has a lot to do with it, and I think you have to. For us, we like to understand really who's buying the system. Is it just the EPC who's supposed to be buying it, building it, putting it into service, and they're out of there? Or is the developer a long-term owner? You know, are they buying it, building it, and then owning it, and then putting it into a portfolio? Two different profiles. You know, one profile wants, you know, to do right by the customer and give them a very good product, a very good installation, hand the keys over. But, you know, they may not elect to take certain options or choose certain suppliers because the the risk won't show up right away. It could be years down the road. And that's where I think a, a strong risk-adjusted supply visibility is really going to make a difference. You know, how old is the company? How long have they been doing this? You know, like you said, the the balance sheet. Is there a balance sheet to back up this warranty? Or is it frankly easier to go out of business than try to meet the obligations of what the warranty said? And we've seen that in our industry over the years, you know, large companies, people you would have never thought would go bust they don't go bust. They just exit the business. <laughs> you know, they're they're out of there and move on and then maybe come back years later. But uh, the supply and delivery of the equipment nowadays is something that's critically important. You know, it used to be, frankly, two cents a watt. You can get anything from anywhere from point A to point B, two cents a watt. But now, you know, you're having to look at inland, ocean, uh, different means of getting things to where you're actually laying this project down onto the site. So having a good, strong logistics supplier or logistics intelligence really helps. And I think as we move forward, um, you know, toward this onshoring of our industry, having more domestic suppliers, you know, we have to take a real close look at, well, is it better to forego, you know, for instance, domestic content requirements. If you get one cent for using domestic supply, but you can save two cents by getting it from a mill on the other side of the ocean, you have to look at those things. And having a supplier can help you understand what those costs are, both on the first cost, the long-term cost, balance sheet, in case something comes up under a warranty, that you, you just have to be aware that the lowest cost, first cost is not always the lowest long-term cost. And actually, one of the things I've also noticed is, you know, when I was doing a lot of work in the Caribbean, I used to load containers one after another after another and ship them into the Caribbean and Central and South America. And I was always a stickler for 
getting the most that you can into the container because, you know, you're paying two, $3,000 for the container. And if you're only 50% utilizing that container, you kind of threw away a lot of money in essence. So, you know, how pa- products are packaged, that's going to have a bearing on all of us in the industry, you know, whether it's on board or in a container or, you know, longer different shapes, uh, the transportation. If you can imagine, remember these wind turbine blades, you know, getting something that big to some mountaintop somewhere, you know, we, we have the same challenges of getting all of the package of equipment into as few containers as we can for the lowest cost. And getting back to that LCOE, that matters. And whether, you know, you're better off, uh, you know, using a combination of domestic and foreign supply to get the maximum benefit of your LCOE. You know, uh, in addition to the the wonderful points you raised um, in an effort to you being humble and not bragging about yourself and, and the sort of the value that you add to EPCs as a global dominant module manufacturer, it's hopefully not lost on the listener that the ability to procure with one throat to choke, the ability to have one partner that b- provides, you know, tier one bankable modules as well as a tracker product and incorporates internal patented products like your spherical bearing and your, um, your clamp and even controls technologies is uh, it reduces the overall uh, level of stress. It streamlines the product delivery and engineering process. And it oftentimes facilitates the speed. And this is something I think folks don't really take into consideration at first. The speed with which your financing partners can f- approve the project. The more vendors you're working with, the more boxes need to be checked for the financier to say, okay, now we've approved the racking. Now we've approved the controls. Now, and each one of those companies needs to be bankable to be on a large 20 megawatt, 100 megawatt, gigawatt scale project, or else the bank is just not going to facilitate the loan uh, to finance the project. Well, it also has a cost on if the project gets flipped and sold, mm-hmm. it should have a higher valuation as well. Yep, in theory. Yep. And uh, I mean, we're seeing increasingly projects getting flipped and sold. And uh, I'd, I'd be curious to know how that is uh, working its way out in the world. As a final thought, module compatibility has been an issue in the tracker industry. How do you see tracker companies addressing that now? Well, I I will tell you in tracker and fixed tilt racking world, they usually, you know, you get a request for quotation and, oh, use this module. And then like three, four weeks later, no, we use this module, change the layout. Oh, wait a minute. A month later, when we're getting close to closing the project, it's the final module that they negotiated the price on and you redo that again. So it's it's a constant, you know, redoing the layout, redoing the fundamental design, and then finally locking into the module and the racking solution. But one of the things that we do is, is all of our modules work with all of our trackers and we can install our trackers with others' modules. But the easiest thing for us is really concentrate on projects that have a bundled solution with our tracker, our module. And those are the, the, the things that I think a lot of logistics people and purchasing people really like. Just like you said, the one throat to choke, three different bankability 
studies, three different sets of purchase orders, three sets of vendor qualifications, three sets of, the, you know, th- that can go on compared to everything from one entity. So if they don't have the back office to support that, that's a great value. If you do have a bunch of different purchasing agents, then yeah, you're good. But in this world that we're seeing now, the new entrance to the industry, there's so many more smaller newbies, if you will. This is like gold to them. It, it's, it's something that I've found in talking with customers. It resonates. They like it. It just makes sense to them. Well, one of the things that that led me to reach out and to say, hey, can we talk? I want to talk to you. You've got a lot of experience on this topic was uh, a white paper that you guys published that I thought like there's white papers are hard to wrap your head around. Sometimes it can be, you know, four pages of value and 44 pages of uh, fluff. So I want to give folks an opportunity to read the white paper that you all wrote around your Trina tracker product, because there's some goodies buried in there. I'm going to highlight them for folks because you're going to want to go and and download this if for no other reason than to learn from the decades of experience embodied in this white paper, candidly. You know, did you talk about in the white paper, the upgraded and patented bearing design, but there's a whole section on O&M that I think this is sleeper content that you guys just aren't using enough, candidly, where it points out the direct versus indirect O&M activities, the main inspected components and inspection procedures with beautiful graphics and even uh, breaks down the O&M cost reduction strategies to lower failure rates and mitigate additional costs in the project. So just my tip to to you and the marketing team over at Sharina, that little section there, boy, I feel like that is underrated uh, in white paper land. Um, so I'm going to encourage listeners to go and download that. We'll put the link for that. I found it uh, in doing my research for this conversation with you. I'll put the link to that in our show notes. I'd encourage you guys to go download that white paper from uh, my friends over at Trina and uh, and dig into it. I've given you at least one little morsel that you'll want to dig into there. It's gosh, God, it's got to be down around page 40, uh, 35 or 40, maybe 34. And then uh, Dell, for folks that you know are just appreciative of you taking the time out of your busy day to help break down the the nuts and bolts, the the foundational principles, these five ways to maximize profits. How could they reach you personally if they wanted to say thank you? Well, I certainly my my email address it's uh, Dell dot Jones Dell with two L's, but who's counting? D E L L, yeah, yeah, Jones at trinasolar dot com, and and you know, and I, I I think I just shared this with you earlier. I'm happy to help really anybody in the industry, because I think at this station in my career, in my life, you know, I just want to see a robust, enduring solar industry. And having been around as long as I have, I've seen a lot of different ways things fail. So, you know, I guess, you know, I've seen a lot of ways not to do things, and I'm happy to share them with competitors, friends, family, like in my case, my daughter, to help them build better projects. Because I'm a true believer in rising tide floats all boats. And we don't need epic failures in our industry, you know, to bring out white papers on how something blew up. We need success stories and, and, and move into this energy transition. Well, I appreciate it, my friend. It's always uh, good to get a chance to learn from and connect with you. Dale Jones is the Trina Pro Key Account Manager for Trina Solar here in North America. And uh, you have now been informed on five ways that you can mitigate risk and maximize your profits when you're considering trackers for your utility scale project. Dell, look forward to having you back again soon. 
Thank you, Nico. It was a pleasure. Enjoyed it. And uh, let's do this again. All right. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation. I appreciate you, Dell, and I appreciate you, Solar Warrior, taking time out of your day to lean in with us, increase your knowledge and skill set. I hope that you've learned something in particular. I hope that you've got a better checklist to go through with your team or personally and help you procure better product, build better projects, and help us scale solar faster and better. As I just mentioned, you can grab that white paper from Dell and the Trina team over at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina, T-R-I-N-A. And of course, while you're at the website, mysuncast.com, you can click through more than 550 additional episodes just like this. We've got resources, highlights, and discussions, social media links, book recommendations, and more in the depth and breadth of the Suncast catalog. I hope that you will make yourself comfortable over there after you've downloaded that white paper from the Trina team. We'll see you back here on Thursday. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.